This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Hey, this is Rachel from Craft Beer and Brewing. This episode is brought to you by our Brewers Retreat. Tickets are on sale now for the ultimate brewing experience this September in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Don't miss the chance to brew with some of the world's best brewers like Dan Kleban of Maine Beer, Jason Perkins of Allagash, Phil Wymore of Perennial, Will Myers of Cambridge Brewing, Neil Fisher of Weldworks, and more. Enjoy fabulous food, fantastic beer, and one-of-a-kind brewing experience at an oceanfront luxury resort. Tickets are selling fast. Visit brewersretreat.com or give me a call at 888-875-8708, extension 0, to secure your spot now. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the show today is Dan Kleban of Maine Beer Company in Freeport, Maine. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Dan got to start uh, making beer professionally on 45-gallon pots on lobster burners as a uh, on a very small, glorified homebrew scale, Blickman pots, I think you mentioned. They absolutely were. And has gone from that kind of small scale, you know, incredibly artisanal, hands-on production to now being next in line to chair the BA Board of Directors leading uh, America's Brewers. Dan, how did this happen? You left a promising career as, uh, as an attorney. And you started home brewing, and decided to turn that into a vocation in the late uh, 2000s. Um, why take that kind of risk and jump right into this career of brewing? Uh, that's that's a that's a great question, and I'm going to try to not be too long-winded with my answer. Um, but there is there certainly is a a, a bit of a backstory here. Um, I graduated law school in 2007. And I uh, went to school in Boston, and my wife and I moved back up to, to Maine, where I, I started practicing as an attorney. Um, and it wasn't too long after starting that uh, a partner at the law firm where I was working um, introduced me to, uh, to, to, to craft beer in, in the United States and kind of, I guess what I would call craft beer in general. That is, you know, the artisanal beers that were being made in uh, Belgium and in Germany. Um, that was really my first intro to this whole world. So yeah. that really wasn't that long ago. Um, and uh, through that relationship, um, he happened to be a homebrew, uh, homebrewer as well. Um, he had been, you know, homebrewing since, you know, back in the probably late 70s, early, early 80s. Um, and he asked me one day when I was over there, uh, over at his house, you know, sharing some beers, he's like, he's like, do you want to come be my brewery assistant for the day? And I think <laughs> what that, what I, what I, I soon found out that meant is, do I want to help him clean <laughs> for the day? Sure, sure. <laughs> um, so I was, I, I did clean his equipment for him while, while, uh, he showed me how to, to homebrew. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, again, at that point I was a practicing attorney, had no, ambition to become a professional brewer never thought i would become a pre- professional brewer there were not breweries opening up in the united states right um it, it, anywhere near the rate that they've been opening up over the last six or seven years um but in 2008 in 2009 um there were some kind of macro things going on in our economy the, there's a big financial sure. obviously big financial collapse um, and I was not immune to that. So I actually got laid off as an attorney mm. in the winter of 2009, um, which actually turned out to be a really, really good thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it was certainly one of those times in my life where, you know, you, you can make the best of a bad situation. And, um, it just so happened that, that prior to, just prior to that, my brother had approached me with the idea cause he, he would help me homebrew on the weekends. Yeah. Um, and he knew that I, I loved it, had a true passion for it. He approached me with the idea of starting a brewery. So, um, you know, I was still practicing at that point, And I'm like, oh, man, you know, there's no way I can, with a straight face, go home to my wife and say, look, I know that I just borrowed $150,000 to put myself <laughs> through law school. And, you know, you, you helped with health insurance. And she's a nurse. And she worked all through law, while I was in law school. I couldn't go home and say, like, I'm going to quit this all yeah. and open a brewery. 
but it turns out getting laid off is a built-in excuse to, <laughs> to go home to her and say, look, sure, <laughs> maybe this law sure. thing isn't working out um, as I planned. And, and frankly, I didn't like practicing law. And um, so it, it was cert- that was certainly was, was a point in my life that it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah. And um, so it was... In 2009, my brother and I um, had put a business, early 2009, put a business plan together and um, seeing kind of what was going on in the world around us. He came from the world of finance. Obviously, I came, the wor- I came from the world of, you know, big, large corporate law firm. Um, we, we saw kind of what uh, kind of corporate America's attitude, where it, had, where it had landed us. Yeah. And both of us were pretty disgusted by it. Um, and said, uh, he, you know, we decided that I, I love to, to make beer, but to, to us, main beer company was going to be more than about making beer. Um, if I just wanted to make beer, I would have stayed a home brewer. Yeah. Um, we wanted to, to try to prove a point that companies, even as small as we started and as small as we still are, um, can be a true model for, for good Hmm. Um, in the world and have really have a positive impact and really felt that the, really the, the, the fate of our community depended on it. I mean, because if corporations just kept yeah. acting like they were, like we, we you know, we're going to get end up, end up in situations like we ended up in 2009. Right. Um, so there were, there was a bigger, I think, motivation, motivation for us to start a brewery than just to make beer. Right. Um, it was that larger, um, I think social mission, uh, that, that we wanted to test out. How does, how does that play out for that brewery? I, you know, there are plenty of companies who use that kind of uh, moral approach to sustainability and they love to advertise that because it looks like good marketing. It can be a lot harder to put that into real practice that has an effect on the people around you and the community around you. For, for you all, what is, what is that implementation of those principles look like for the brewery? Um, you know, people can smell out bullshit, right? Yeah, they, they can. Um, you, you know, when a company's sincere in their message or not, are yeah. they using it as a marketing employers as really, um, a core value, you know, are, or is what they're talking about really something that's, that's a core value of theirs. Um, and so, you know, going back to the beginning before we made any beer and, and we were just drafting a business plan. Uh, we knew that we wanted this to be the driving, the single driving value of, yeah. of our company. And we gave a lot of thought to how can we um, embed this in our company, in our, in our culture. Um, and so one of the things we did, you know, early on before, again, we were just drafting a business plan before we even sold a bottle of beer is um, I actually came across an organization while I was just, I think, trolling uh craft beer websites just to learn about the industry and i i remember um sifting through new belgium's website one day and um just looking kind of looking at their beers not really looking for anything in particular but i did i clicked on a tab that took me to their probably social responsibility page or what they were doing and obviously they're very active uh, and engaged um but i came across this organization that they were a member of called one percent for the planet and Mm -hmm. so i did some more research on this organization and um, took this to, to my brother and I said, look, you got to check out this organization. It's really cool. And he's like, well, what is it? And I said, it w- it's an organization that's founded by the uh, founder of Patagonia Outerwear, Yvonne Chouinard. And he started this organization with the idea that if every company in the world donated 1% of their revenue, not profits, mind mm. you, so top line revenue yeah. to environmentally focused nonprofits, we could cure, we could save the world. I mean, that, that's yeah. it in a nutshell, right? So if, if everybody just gives a little bit, a, a little bit, um, you know, we can have a huge impact. And so what you do, um, if you want to participate in the program, in, in the, the organization, is you as a business pledge that 1% top-line mm. revenue um, to environmental, environmentally-focused nonprofits that are certified by 1% for the planet to be right. recipients. So they're not sham organizations. They, they do their due diligence and make sure they're legit right. operations. Um, so we decided uh, to join. Again, we hadn't sold a bottle of beer. We weren't making any money at the time. But we said, like, look, this is a way for us to, A, keep ourselves honest yeah. uh, and also show show the world that, that we're 
literally putting our money where our mouth is. Right. This isn't, this is something we truly believe in. And we're going to start donating money to nonprofits even during the lean years, the first and second year. We weren't making any profit. Wow. But we were donating revenue. Um, so we weren't even paying, we didn't, we, we weren't, we were not even paying ourselves and we were giving money away. Huh. So <laughs> that, you know, that, sure. That, that's one, I think, way that, that, that we, again, that we uh, were able to keep ourselves honest and, and true to our, our mission and also to show others. Now, you know, is, was that motivated out of just love for the planet or is that motivated out of a way to connect with consumers or some combination of both? Both. Okay. Certainly both. Um, it, it certainly is derived out of a belief yeah. that, um, and, I, and I, I believe it firmly and even more so today than I did back then, that... Um, Organizations, you know, corp- corporations or any any, any organization, um, we tend to get away with externalizing a lot of costs. And right. certainly, certainly one of the biggest um, externalities that businesses, companies create are effects on our environment. Yeah. And what I mean by an externality is these are things that we do to harm things that somebody else has to pay for or somebody else has to live with. Right. We're externalizing that cost. Um, and so... I, I truly believe, um, you know, deep down to my core that we, that that's not right. Yeah. That, that's a free ride, um, that companies are taking on the backs of their communities. And so for that reason, um, uh, that, that is why environmentally focused nonprofits are so uh, important to us. That's not to say that sure, there are ton- sure. obviously there, there are every nonprofit at least that I know of is deserving of every dollar that, that, that they get right, right. Um, you know, socially focused nonprofit, um, and bre- but, breweries have a rather large footprint on the environment. It, it, you know, yes. from, oh, from the agriculture that you know produces ingredients to the manufacturing process and wastewater to shipping and distribution and, and you know carbon that's produced, the uh, fuel and energy that's ta- you know takes uh, in that production process. Um, you know, how do you live out those values in in a lot of these areas? Yeah, I mean, yeah, as that, a production and a business that makes things and creates waste. That's exactly no. You you you, you couldn't be more correct about that. We certainly are um, in in dis, um, a resource intensive um, industry. We use like you said, we use a lot of water. We produce CO two. Um, right. uh, we use a lot of electricity. You know, especially the bigger you get and the bigger right. your your pump motors are and everything, the the more energy you're consuming. Um, so if you know, I think it's especially important for you know manufacturing facilities like like breweries to right. be especially conscious of these things. And I, I would preface all this with: I always tell people is you do what you can do. Not everybody has the same means, right? right. Certainly, um, uh, you know Sierra Nevada in in New Belgium and the larger breweries um, can do a lot more and have done a lot more. Sure, and that's sure. all the credit to them in the world for. For, for doing what they do. Yep. But as you know, we started out brewing 45 gallons of beer at a time where we, we didn't, we don't have solar panel, uh, on, over a carport and we don't have, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. CO2, you know, we can't capture the CO2 and, and reuse it. That, right. That's just not reality. Right. So my advice was, is always in the, what we did, what we, um, kind of the rule we live by is you, you do what you can do. Yeah. Um, and I think as and this really goes back to the earlier question you asked is how do you, how do you embed that, this, uh, philosophy in your culture? Right. Um, and I think as long as you're constantly reminding yourself of why you're doing what you do and, and for us, it's because we want to, to have this positive impact on our communities. Um, you will make business decisions that are consistent with that purpose, right? right. And so, for example, um, it was kind of almost three years ago, um, we were contemplating, um, you know, we had, we had some capacity um, or we had some, some um, we had the ability if we wanted to add capacity. We were, we were selling all the beer we could make, um, <clears throat> And we could have bought some more fermenters and easily sold that beer too and, sure. ma- and made more money. That, that w- wouldn't have been a problem. Um, but we also knew that, that, you know, our mission was to, again, minimize our environmental uh, impact. And so instead of investing in more fermenters, we 
um, we invested in you know a quarter million dollar solar panel project um, before we invested in capacity. Wow. Um, and again, it was it was the reason was twofold. It was to keep ourselves honest. This is why yeah. we exist. We don't exist just to make beer and make as much of it as fast as we can. That's not right. why we're here. Um, so we we uh, we did that 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 project, and again, it was also to show the people that that you know buy into our belief system to show them that look, we we haven't abandoned you. We're, yeah. we're, we're still right, we're, right. we're we're still staying true to who we are, um, and at the time that is that is that's what we could do. We we were able yeah. to do that, um, and we did. Um, but a funny thing, and it's not funny, but I think to some people it was a it might be su- sound surprising because I think the typical, um, you know, business ethos is you know it's profit driven, right? Just right. you know you just. Just try to maximize profit, shareholder profit. If you profit. can grow, you should. If you can grow, you should. And then, you know, if you can happen to then give back, if you're fortunate enough to make enough money that you right. can then give back to charity, well, then you should do that. We we flipped that on its head. We said if you lead with your values, if yeah. you lead with giving back, commitment to your, the planet, your community, and your employees, that's going to drive profit. That is going to resonate with the beer drinkers. That's what's going to distinguish you in a crowded marketplace. Values. It's, it's why you're making what you make, not just what you make. Yeah. T- tons of people out there are making great beer. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I think you have to step back and say you're talking about not to, you know, people aren't necessarily going to buy beer that's not as good or as high a quality you know, if, the, if just for the values alone. That's correct. You know, but when you are on a fairly even playing field with you know with other fellow breweries producing similar quality of beer then then those values come into play yeah absolutely and um and it's the way that i think if more companies and this isn't just applied to, to brewers sure. if, if they took this approach of leading with your values yeah we've we've shown and other companies we're certainly not the only one in in the world that has done this um that in enough of itself can drive in what, frankly, what should drive your yeah. growth and yeah. your profit. And it creates a more lasting um, and durable relationship between you, the, the, the brewer, the manufacturer, and your customer. It's, again, it's not just transactional with the people that are yeah. drinking our beer. They're drinking our beer in part because they enjoy it, right? You can't, you can't, you know, if sure. it was shitty beer, I don't <laughs> care what your values are. Right, right. Um, no one's going to buy it. Um, but we, you connect with them on a much deeper level, which which creates a relationship, like I said, that's much more, much more durable and will, will be long-term, uh, will be much, uh, much longer lasting. You know, I don't know if, if, we're, if, we, if we talk about this that much, but I think that there, uh, you know, the, the concept and the, the psychology of taste itself is a malleable thing. You know, we like to think that an idea of good is, is based solely on what's in a glass. But, you know, as we've talked about before, a lot of what you view as good is also based on the context, the surroundings, the experience, who you're drinking that beer with, where you're drinking it. And in some ways, I, I wouldn't be surprised if entering into that, that sip from that, that glass, uh, knowing where that company is coming from, that those values may actually impact the way that beer tastes you know, in the mind of the person drinking it. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I don't think there's any question about that, that, you know, we're not, we're not robots. We're human yeah. beings. Um, and we, we experience things on many different levels. And, and, and I would say um, that, you know, just the truly kind of objective flavor of, of the beer or the objective uh, uh, functionality of the coat you're wearing or the shoes you're wearing is of relatively it's important, yeah. but I think there are things that are more important, yeah. um, and and that is um, that that kind of unquantifiable quality to the products that we buy, that we drink, that we eat, that we put on our bodies, that resonates with people uh, on a much deeper level. I mean, I can go from good beer to good beer. If I don't have an allegiance, though, to a brewery for some reason, other than they make yeah. good beer, I'm just going to com- keep going to different breweries, right? What, what keeps me going back uh, time and again to the same... Uh, to the same thing, um, it, it, it's more than just the, just what I'm drinking, or again what I'm wearing or eating. It's that my values align with. Yeah. I want I want to support 
somebody whose values align with mine. Right. And I think that's a very human, a very, a very common uh, human trait. Yeah. You know, we don't want to support things that we don't believe in. We want to support things that we do believe in. Yeah. Um, and that just, that doesn't, that, that is very little to do with the objective quality of the product. Right. Right. Um, I, th- what I, another piece I find fascinating that you touched on a little bit there is this this idea of growth and the idea of growth not necessarily being good for for growth's sake. Um, for most breweries now, I mean, we are seeing um, the negative effects of growth that was not well considered. We're seeing some some breweries who have taken out debt in order to seize opportunities that they thought they saw on the market. Uh, we're seeing you know those chickens come home to roost and uh, you know owners and founders losing control of their breweries, uh, handing them over to the banks to loan them money. Uh, and we're seeing that growth in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. It can be a very dangerous thing and a thing that puts people's businesses in jeopardy. Uh, at the same time, you know, if you are a values-driven business like yours and you want to give back to your employees and uh, also be able to you know, uh, invest in 1% for the planet, you do have to be you have to make some money, you know, you have to you have to be profitable and you have to, you know, to, to, in order to afford those kinds of things. Uh, and you need to continue to grow at a certain scale because it, it provides larger dollar amounts to make those contributions more significant and not just, uh, you know, a percentage of a very small revenue number. Um, how do you, how do you balance that question? And how do you know when it's the right time, you know, to take that growth step? Yeah, that that's a that's a really good question, and I and I think that that's probably a question that is top of mind for a lot of brewers, especially this day and age. Yeah, um, for all the reasons that that you you prefaced your question with, um, and you know our our approach from the beginning, um, I guess, is it's been grounded in in you know kind of several you know principles um, that were really never written down, but it's, it, these are just things I think are are just a, my brother and I's approach to our business in general. Um, and in one of those is it's, it's methodical growth, you know, never get out, you know, too far over, over the tip of your skis. Right. Um, and grow for the right reasons. Um, are you, are you growing just so you can make more money and buy a nicer car and buy a boat or buy a bigger house? Yeah. If, if that's the re if that's the only reason, then that is not in my mind, a legitimate reason for growth. Yeah. Um, are you, are you making growth decisions based off of the fact that you want to provide better benefits for your employees? You want to provide your employees growth opportunities, you know, for them to advance their own careers. Are you growing because you want to invest more in sustainability offsets? Are you growing because you want to give more back to your community? Um, those are legitimate reasons for growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, that in you, 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 you're exactly right. You need to grow if you want to do those things. You need to make more money right. to afford to do those things. Um, and so that has always kind of been our approach. Is we, we have to ask ourselves that. Um, but there's also, I mean, it's not all just kind of um, altruistic like that. I mean, there are business realities to sure, things, right? Sure. I mean, um, if we go out of business. We're not employing anyone. We're not right. doing. We're not doing one percent right. of right. anything to anybody. So there are market realities that can that can drive growth. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I remember, you know, our first business plan. I think had us making, maybe in five years we were making like three thousand barrels. Yeah. And we thought if we could ever get there, like wow, we're gonna stop. We'll we'll have it. You know, I you know I will have replaced <laughs> my lawyer salary. We'll right. we'll, we'll have health right. insurance. We'll employ. I think maybe three or four people like that is boom we're going to put the brakes on we're going to be done um we learned over (laughs) and over and over again that it's not that easy yeah you can't it's very very difficult just to just to stop that doesn't mean however yeah that you should just take your foot off the brake and go go you know whole hog as fast as you can um again you just i think you have to really be conscious of why you're making the decisions you make um and, you know, we realized that in addition to wanting, you know, to, to, to needing to grow to provide more opportunities to employees and to, to do more sustainability initiatives, you know, sometimes growth is driven by, you know, we've been in the fortunate position that people like our beer, they yeah. buy our beer, yeah. we have wholesalers that want our beer, we have retailers that want our beer, we have beer drinkers that want our beer. Um, 
and the marketplace is becoming inc- increasingly com- competitive. Yeah. So there are reasons to grow just to to satisfy all th- all three of those right. those kind of constituencies. Um, you know, wholesalers, retailers, and beer drinkers, yeah, right? Um, yeah. you know, they, they're not drinking your beer. They're going to go drink somebody else's beer. I'm, I'm going to be the last person to say our beer. I think our beer is good. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm proud of the beer we make, but I'm never, I would never be so bold to say that our beer is irreplaceable. Right. Right. Um, so if, you know, our, someone's not cracking a bottle of our beer open, they're going to be cracking a bottle of somebody else's beer open. So if we want to provide all those right, kind of cool right. things that we want to do and create this really cool company, you know, um, you got to strike while the iron's hot. So right? where, where are you now and uh, where do you see that going in terms of, you know, production volume? Yeah. So, I mean, um, we are so for the two two previous years. So 2016, 2017, we were operating um, pretty much at, we were operating at capacity. We couldn't, we couldn't produce another drop of beer, even if we wanted to, we were just tapped out in terms of our physical space wouldn't allow it. Um, however we, and so we had to make, you know, my brother and I had to make a really, really, really critical call. Do we just keep it that way? Stop. Yeah. Um, or we were kind of at one of those junctures where the next investment wasn't just another tank. Yeah. It's another building. It's another brew house. It's an, you know, it's, it, right. you reach these stages of growth as a, as a brewer, any company where you can kind of add marginally to your capacity. And then you hit these big kind of yeah. benchmark yeah. or these big um, kind of hurdles where you have to make huge investments to take it to the next level. And that's right. where we were. Um, and, you know, obviously we decided that, you know, for all the reasons I just spoke about, um, uh, we were we were we were going to invest in um, take to take it to that next level. And so you just up and moved the brewery. So we well we added on the, we added a new building onto our original building. Okay. So we have a new facility, um, and then because you know as a brewer you can't just stop brewing for six months. Right. Um, you have to keep your production going all while you're you know building yeah. a new building. Right. So we actually put in all brand new a whole. Um, brand new brew house, wow. cellar, wow. packaging lines, um, you know, lab, um, QA, QC equipment. We just, we basically made a whole second facility, huh. um, installed that. Um, and that will, you know, that'll allow us, we were operating at about a 12,000 barrel a year capacity for these last two years. And this brewery, well, it's, it's a, it, it's a big jump for us. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we will tap out our new facility at somewhere around 45 or 50,000 barrels. So, yeah. And we don't ever need to get there. <laughs> with that yeah. that's what we yeah. could grow into. You know, yeah. this year our plan is to come close to doubling our our production. Huh. Um and uh but if we never sold an, another drop of beer more than that just because the market didn't want it, we'd be we'd be fine. Huh. You know, we, again we made our business planning decisions were very conservative. Yeah. Um you know, we we ran the numbers. We we know our debt load and you know, right. um we don't we we haven't and have no plans to sell any part of our company to any equity investors yeah. private equity or even family or anybody else um, <laughs> um so other than some very very you know small amounts of the company that you know some of our close family got in got yeah. in on at the very very beginning uh, um you know we're very guarded um with yeah. with our yeah. ownership um we're, we we knew that we didn't we weren't setting uh, unrealistic expectations especially in this kind of crowded sure marketplace where we knew that you know if we just sold what we thought was a a fairly conservative amount of beer more we we'd still be fine and yeah. now we have yeah. capacity to grow so if we do have you know if we are in a fortunate enough position where people do keep wanting more and more of our beer we don't have to tell them no yeah and we can grow but again in the grand scheme of things I mean 45,000 barrels if we ever got there yeah I mean, that's, we're, we're not talking hundreds of thousands of barrels. That, we're, that's still pretty modest. That's a lot size. of beer for the way that you package. It as is. Well, you, um, you have insisted on packaging in what, 500 milliliter bottles um, and, and glass in an era where uh, a significant number of breweries have moved to aluminum cans and are, uh, uh, or at least multi pack, uh, you know, kind of beer. Um, you know, the economic realities of the market out there are such that, uh, you know, most consumers want to buy a little bit more volume. Um, why, why stick with single bottles of 500 milliliter beer um, in the marketplace now? Yeah, we've been, we've been pretty stubborn that way. Yeah. Um, 
And, and how have it, you been able to get away with that? <laughs> you know, look, I, 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 I don't have a great answer for that. I yeah. have some, some theories. Yeah. Um, and again, this goes back to investing in the, the communicating the, the value of your company, the values of your company, the why you're doing what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, our for our particular format, the single 500 milliliter bottle, um, it was a crazy idea at, at the beginning. Sure. I, I mean, I remember, you know, approaching people that were already in the industry with our ideas and like, you guys are going to go to market with a single 500 milliliter bottle and sell it for that amount of money. Like, good luck. You got You got to go heavy with half barrels or yeah. 999 six packs. That's the only way you're going to survive in this industry. But look what's, look what's happened. I don't, that obviously is not true. Yeah. And it's not just yeah. my brewery that, that has proven that that's not true. Yeah. Um, I think that there is something to be said about standing out. Um, and in, you know, frankly, the, the more breweries, and trust me, I get the whole canning question almost every day. When are you guys going to can? When are you going to put your beer in, <laughs> in cans? Sure, um, sure. And there's nothing wrong with putting your beer in cans. Can, right. I drink canned beer all the time. This yeah. isn't a knock on canning per se, but when it comes to our particular brand image, um, the more, when they're zigging, you know, we're, we're zagging. So it used to be you'd go into a cooler at a, at a, a bottle shop and it was all bottles. Right. Um, now it's like you said, it's a large chunk of it is cans and our bottle stood out amongst bottles just because of the nature of its design. Um, but now in a sea of cans, it stands out even more. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I, I think that our bottle has also become iconic. You know, yeah. you, we, you know, take a, an Orval bottle. If you got, if you drank an Orval out of a can, would you have the same experience? I don't think. I wouldn't. Probably not. There's something to that particular sure. bottle, the, sure. the shape, the look, the feel. You know, I think in my mind, what is great about beer is that, it's it's a it's an experience. It's a ritual. Sitting down, popping a top, pouring the bottle into a glass, you know, with just the right amount of head. Reading the story yeah. on the bottle that that to me can be a ritual. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think in a lot of ways for people with with our, our particular with our bottle, it, it has taken on that uh, more iconic status. Um, and I think if we short term could we sell more beer if we canned it. Sure. But again, this goes back to why are you doing it? Are you doing it just so you can sell more? Yeah. No. I mean, now granted, if people stop buying our bottles, (laughs) you might see us in in, in cans, right? There's a business reality to all this. It's not just altruistic, but, but, um, but so far they haven't, they haven't. Right. And they, 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 um, um, they continue to buy it in the bottle in that format. And that to us is a signal that they like it. Well, you seem to also, um, you know, relative to some of your contemporaries in New England, run this, um, uh, you've, you're using the same format packaging for your, uh, the, the beer that you push out into distribution into retail, as well as some of the beers that, that never really leave the brewery that you sell, you know, direct to consumer only and in more limited releases, beers like uh, Dinner, um, where you know beer geeks still line up for them and uh, and come and buy them directly from you and and so you know is there any kind of trickle down halo effect from the the aura around uh, some of those harder to get beers that uh, that may still add some value to the consumer packaging of of the stuff that you do distribute? Um, yeah, is I mean, it ever part of your calculation or is it just n- something no. that's happened? <laughs> no, it certainly has never been a part of our calculation. Um, you know, I think the, you know, I, you you brought up you brought up dinner. I mean, the first time I brewed dinner, I think we made. Um, I, I didn't know if anybody would like it. I made. I think we did. I think we made. We put it. We had a seven barrel fermenter, um, one seven barrel fermenter where we were operating on a fifteen barrel brew house, so we could do a half batch. These were that's how we would do our experimental beers. So, right, so dinner. Right. That's how dinner started out. Just an experimental beer, like let's just try this beer tried double dry hopping it and um you know i had done pilot batches of it knew i liked it but we just released it in a tasting room not really not anticipating 
anybody yeah. showing up just to ha- just to, to to come try this, thinking that people would just be up in the tasting room, they'd see it on the shelf and, and they'd try it. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> so we released it that first time, and you know, people it trickled through the, the tasting room, and you know, it's it sold out, and so we're like, oh well, well that sold pretty well. There were yeah. no lines. There were you know, no one. Sure. We didn't sure. announce it. There were we weren't hyping it or doing anything, frankly. Um, and so we said, well, next time we'll we'll, we'll brew 15 barrels of it, um, and this time we'll tell people that we're you know that we're gonna have it on sale at a, at a certain time so that they know when to show up and buy it. And I remember showing up to work the day that we released it. Um, actually, there was an employee that showed up way earlier than I did and reported like, look, there's people lined up here. <laughs> what, what year was that? Oh, geez, that would have been. I'm horrible with dates, but that. Within, we might be coming up on four years, three wow. years, three okay. or four years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to guess we're coming up on four years, but yeah. I, I could be off by a year. Um, so what, 2015? 2014. We moved into our new brewery in Freeport in 2013. It was at least a year after that that okay. we came out with the first batch. So 2014, at the, of sure. the spring of 14 at the earliest. Maybe the spring of 15. Um Early times for people waiting in line. Yeah, for IPA. well, that's yeah. that's why we had no idea what yeah, to expect, yeah. and so we showed up and we're like, holy, holy shit! Like we were underprepared. We didn't have like POS. We had one POS system, and we had this long line of people, and you know, we pro- you know we got them all through and sold out all the beer, and so then then you know the next time we're like, oh, we, we well we'll. Uh, We'll make we, we made thirty barrels of it again, and then this time like we'll have like two or three POS systems. This time we'll 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 nail it. You know, more people showed up. I mean, we had people lined up down. Uh, we're on. If people are familiar with where we are, we're on kind of a Route One. You know, right. Route One. Um, so it's a pretty busy road. People lined up down the road. Um, so this is all a long-winded way of saying that we didn't try to create any of this intentionally. Yeah. This was all an organic kind of phenomenon that we did not anticipate we certainly appreciate it when we're humbled by it sure sure but struggled for many releases to try to accommodate people in a yeah. safe way and process people i mean people were camping out overnight um <laughs> but what you mentioned like this this phenomenon was new to the craft yeah. beer i mean not new i mean th- there are certainly were other brewers who were experiencing this dark lord day and stuff right, like that but right. in large part smaller breweries like mine we were only producing a few thousand barrels at that point we weren't experiencing this right um, for sour beers and you know for big barrel aged stouts, yeah, you kind of understood that. But for IPAs, yeah, didn't, for, didn't seem like the no, thing, and we right? didn't. We, and, and but um, again, certainly you know humbled and honored by sure, the reception. Sure. But w- this was not um, an attempt to create you know manufacture buzz, yeah, in order yeah. to sell more of our other brands. Now it has it has probably worked out that way. It, it gained us some some notoriety, and, and that that's great. Um, that certainly wasn't the intent behind behind it <laughs> sure, at all. Sure, um, you know, and I, I don't know if uh, you know most beer drinkers really understand all of the logistics involved in trying to make more of that beer. And there's that idea. Well, it's an IPA; they can just make as much as they want. You know, there, there aren't barrels involved, but um, sourcing the right amount of hops, the, the quality of hops that you're looking for from the place that you get them. <laughs> Um, those all pose challenges for you, especially if you haven't uh, contracted for them. And you get pretty in- involved in your ingredient sourcing, especially when it comes to hops. Yeah, so um, yeah, so especially early on with, with that beer in particular, you know, um, some of the listeners here might be familiar with, with hop, you know, kind of, the, kind of how the hop contracting world works. Some might not be, but in our world... Um, we forward contract for our hops. You know, we forward contract now for five years. Wow! So we have to try to anticipate the the uh, quantity of and variety of the hops we're going to be putting into our beers in 2023. Today, that, yeah. that, that's a, yeah. I mean, that's really a full why, errand why in go a lot to of five ways. Five years and not something like three and and, and you're to secure to secure it. Okay. I mean, because if you don't, there's always the the risk that if you don't secure it now and you wait two more years, right? right? Right, they're going to be gone, or the price is going to be a lot higher. You're, you're playing in a futures market. It's, sure, you're trying to predict the future. Right, and so you're you know you're hedging and you're making your best guesses. Um, but with so but with that beer in particular, again, we didn't know it was going to be popular, and we right. I, I frankly only planned on you know making seven barrels of it. <laughs> and, you know, so didn't yeah, predict five yeah. years from now. You know, that five years we might want to make a lot more. Um, and so at the very beginning, you know, we couldn't 
literally could not make more than yeah. we were making of it. Um, you know, obviously we've been able to do more planning now sure, or, sure. you know, three or four years beyond, you know, kind of the, the launch of that beer. And we do make more of it. Yeah. You know, we just, the last, so we, we've gone from making seven barrels at a time to 30 barrels at a time to 60 barrels at a time. We just, because of our new facility, we're able to, we brewed 120 barrels of it at a time. We went from releasing it, you know, once every six months to now we're releasing it, I don't know, maybe five or six times this year and 120 mm. barrels each time. So wow. we have increased the, the <laughs> sure, production of sure, it sure. considerably fr- yeah. from from the beginning. So I think sometimes there's this myth that we're intentionally trying to um, short supply people yeah. uh, or short supply the market in order to drive up buzz um, in that that is not true. However, I will say that we do we do um, sell it only out of the brewery, the bottles, and for me, that's a quality reason. Yeah. Um, unlike draft beer, um, bottled beer going th- going through wholesale, especially a double IPA, you know, um, yeah. um, is extremely extremely um, uh, sensitive to abuse in the marketplace. Kept warm, you know. Yeah. I, I don't want that beer sitting on a retail shelf for. A month. Uh, it'll ruin the beer. Frankly, it'll ruin the beer. Yeah. Um, so by by maintaining control of the distribution outside, you know, just straight direct to consumer yeah. through our, our tap room, I'm I'm given the, the most kind of the biggest peace of mind that I can possibly have that that beer is going to go from our brewery the day that it's bottled into somebody's either mouth or into the refrigerator and yeah. it's going to be consumed, yeah. you know, fairly quickly. Um, but and also, um, you know, uh, there is. Something to be said in, in, about um, not making something something that you really think is special, not making it ubiquitous. Yeah, I mean, I think I I think there's something to be said about that. Um, so I, I think as brewers, and I think a lot of brewers would tell you the same thing: we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. Right? Sure. We don't make enough of it, and then we hear like, "Why are you making more of it?" You know, they're just trying to be stingy and trying to drive up demand by yeah. short supplying the market. You make it ubiquitous, then nobody wants it anymore. <laughs> So, you know, I would rather keep it yeah. special yeah. and a little bit more limited than have it become ubiquitous and right. nobody want it anymore. For sure. Now, you know, there's also a, you know, a beer design question there because certainly you do make, you know, beers that are, that sit out there on shelves and have to deal with some of those, uh, you know, as you said, questionable storage, yeah. uh, you know, and retail But there are market realities. We have to, if you're going to distribute sure, beer, you just sure. have to, you have to work with those. But you can also design recipes and, uh, you know, and, and build those beers in a way that they are sturdier, um, you know, and, and the flavors that you're trying to pull out of something like dinner are more fragile, you know. Absolutely. Um, you know, that kind of hops character is certainly more fragile. Um, talk to me a little bit, you know, about how that looks for something like, uh, you know, Peeper, mm-hmm. uh, Pale Ale, which... Which goes out and, ha- and does have to deal, at, you know, out there in the retail channel versus something like dinner, uh, and what what some of those concerns are and how you how you design for that shelf stability. Sure. Um, so you're, you're you're absolutely right. I mean that that as a brewer um, and as anyone who's working in a, a process facility, you can there are ways that. Maybe not necessarily the the recipe formulation in and of itself, but the the brewing techniques, the, yeah. the the techniques that you use in transferring your beer from brew house to cellar, from cellar to either filter or a centrifuge. You know, we use a centrifuge; we don't filter any of our beers. Um, the 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 way that you package the beer uh, at each one of those process points, you have control over the quality of the yeah. beer. And, you know, from a, not to get too technical, but, you know, really what will, what is the catalyst for beer spoilage, but for beer spoilage is oxygen. Yeah. So at every step in the process, to the extent you can minimize oxygen uptake, the better shelf life, the better stability, the more sturdy your beer is going to be on uh, a shelf in a bottle shop or in a right. bar or whatever. Um, so, um, this ties into our early conversation on, on growth. And I didn't mention dur- during that conversation that, you know, one of my kind of core principles is quality over quantity. Yeah. We better be investing at every step along the way in quality control and quality assurance, either tools, personnel, techniques, or whatever, before we're adding another tank. Yeah. You know, um, it's you know it's frankly discouraging to go into to some brewers. Some are not necessarily small, and you don't see microscopes. You don't yeah. see you know hemocytometers for cell counts. I mean, these are things that we owe it to our people that are spending their hard-earned money 
we owe it to them um, to produce top quality product. So for us, um, because we do, you know, we do make hop forward beers and those tend to be beers that are a little bit more fragile, you know, in terms of they will lose their aroma, oxidation will, will really can harm them. Um, we invest heavily in, in QA, QC. That, yeah. that really, for us, that is the biggest safeguard because once that beer leaves our dock, uh, it's largely out, out of our hands. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's hard. We, we don't have, you know, a foot patrol of police going into every <laughs> bottle shop and looking at date codes. And sure. You know, so sure. as much as our bottle tries to, to telegraph to people, you know, we were very transparent. We put dates yeah. on all of our beers. We put best buy dates. So it's not just a, you know, um, or I'm sorry, we put a born on date and drink within 90 days. Yeah. Very transparent about that. And we would expect somebody not to buy it if it's outside that. Um, so, yeah, it really comes down to what are your investment priorities? What are your growth strategies? And I, yeah. I, I, I would, you know, and at least in my brewery, um, they have always been quality before quantity. Let's pivot a little bit. Um, you know, I, I did mention it earlier, but you have been really active in working with directly with hops growers. And we did a story about that in uh, last year right. in Craft Beer right. Brewing Magazine. Yep. We had a fantastic conversation, and I wish I could have recorded it at that time because uh, <laughs> it was fascinating. Um, you know, but, but one of the things that you've been able to do, and, and part of that is your early entry into the industry in the, the late 2000s, um, getting in on that forefront of brewers working directly with hops growers to help uh, move the agriculture in a way that serves what brewers really need. And, uh, you know, for a lot of the history of hops, hops have been bought through brokers and there'd been a third party relationship. And, uh, um, you know, and so, you know, a few brewers and, and certainly Vinny Slurzo is one of them, you know, really kind of pioneered that getting out there on the craft side and working directly with those hops growers and, um, you know, t- to get what you need to make the beers that you want. Uh, how, did that pro- how has that process, you know, evolved over time? And, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about what you've been able to achieve by working directly with hops growers to give them feedback on how they develop uh, new hops and, uh, and push characteristics in their existing crops. Yeah, I, I'll start out by saying I think that our are and i use that in 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 the sense of main beer company and i think in the greater kind of american craft brewing world uh our relationship with our suppliers especially our hop suppliers especially if you're a hop forward brewery like mine um, or like Vinny's, um is one of the most important relationships that you have yeah uh, that you that you should have at least um and so um, what we have prioritized, what I've prioritized, um, is cultivating those relationships. So even though, you know, I live on the, I live in the other Portland that's on the opposite end of the country than where all of our hops are grown. Um, we make it a priority, uh, to stay in constant communication with, um, not only the, the farmers, but our, we, you know, our hop brokers and we, we go out there every single year, um, and we examine the, the hops that, that we purchase. We, you know, we select our, our hops, which a lot of, uh, I would say a decent number of breweries do sure. uh, less than you would think. Hmm. Um, but, um, we certainly invest in that that trip that you know the travel cost and, yeah. and everything associated with that again i think that's and the hot, the larger hops brokers have, have certainly been bringing down the the uh, required volumes in order yeah. to even participate right in so that yeah, right so when we first started we didn't it wasn't even an option for us because we yeah. weren't using enough um they wouldn't sure. you don't have the option to go out there and select you kind of got what you got and you had to make yeah. do with yeah. it um but you know as you as as you said jamie yeah. nowadays um you know the, the the amount of hops that you have to buy in order to to allow them to come out and, and select has has dropped dramatically. So um, more brewers should be taking advantage of that opportunity. But what that's done for for us is a not only has it allowed us to go out there and actually physically inspect to 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 rub and smell and inspect the exact particular variety or lots of Simcoe and Citra and all the other hop varieties that we use to make sure that um, they match what uh, we want out of that hop. Because I think what was extremely eye-opening for me when I first went out there for selection was that the amount of variation within a variety from lot to lot, so let's take Simcoe, for example, um, can be very... 
shockingly broad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so if you're not going out there selecting and you're just relying on kind of the luck of the draw, sure. you can get lots. You can get lots of Simcoe in your brewery that I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't know that they were both Simcoe if you put them side by side. Yeah. yeah. So um, we go out there and we select so that we can match the exa- you know, we can get the exact right. amount of kind of pininess or citrusiness or whatever it is we're looking for out of that, that Simcoe lot. We can yeah. get exactly that so that our beers stay, con- stay consistent. Right. So if we were brewing with different lots of Simcoe every year or every batch or whatever, the beers are going to taste different. Um, so that's, that's one important, just very, very practical and kind of quality driven reason yeah. to, um, to go out there and to have a relationship with your broker. But even I think going a level beyond that is having, uh, a close relationship with a farmer. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's fun. I mean, this is why, I mean, th- this is why you get into this business right. is to, to go out in a hop field and talk with the hop breeder who is developing what could be the next Simcoe or developing what could be the next Citra or Mosaic or whatever, getting to pick their brain and go walk out in the fields and see these plants when there's only one or two of them in the ground or there's only an acre of it in the ground um, and have these conversations with the farmer. Um, it, it's One, it's just incredibly enlightening and, and yeah. fun, and it also allows us as, as a brewery to stay on our game um, in, in, you know, what you know like i said you don't know what the next big hop is going to be what's going to yeah. be that next hop that just blows you off of your seat right right so by creating that that relationship with a farmer you can have some inside information on what are those experimental varieties yeah. coming down the yeah. pipe um and if you have a relationship with that farmer maybe they give you a little bit to start to play around with before yeah. other brewers have a chance to play around with them um so again, there's, there's another, that creates a, that's a value in and of itself. Right. Um, and also the farmer, they need feedback. Yeah. Right. They're, they're, they're extremely, you know, the hop breeders, they're extremely talented at doing what they do, but very few, if any of them are brewers. Yeah. So just because they can grow this beautiful hop looking hop and right. while they can smell it out in the field and it smells good, you know, on the, the, the palm of their hand, how's that going to translate when it's brewed with? So they rely on brewers like myself to, to give them feedbacks. And so, you know, one of the things that we've done with um, our, you know, our, our, one of the farmers that we work with who, who happens to be kind of in charge of one of the larger breeding programs in the United States um, is he, he, he sends us, you know, small samples of, you know, ex, you know, very rare kind of experimental hops and we'll, we'll brew just um, single, single hop beers, meaning yeah. that we'll brew a beer that has a fairly kind of, um, uh, simple kind of malt bill and really just try to input this one single hop in it so we can really focus and sure. dial in on what this hop does or how it translates through the brewing process. And we'll take meticulous sensory notes, both that are provided by staff, so brewers and, and people that are kind of more trained sensory people, but we also we, we will, we'll serve it in our tasting room and we'll get feedback from customers because that's at the end of the day, that's really what matters right. is to, to the beer drinkers like it. And we provide we written feedback, we, we like comment cards. We take all those, synthesize that info, and give that back to the farmer. And that, that's, he loves that. I mean, that, that, that yeah. is, that's gold to him because just because he can grow this hop and maybe it's an abundant hop, it's good agronomically. That is, he can make money off it. If no, brewer, if no brewers want to use it because no customers like the way that it presents in beer, then he's just wasted all his time. Yeah. So it's, it's keeping those, I think keeping those channels of communication is, is really valuable for us, the brewer, because it keeps it fun for us. It keeps yeah. us innovative. It's great for the farmer. Um, cause it gives kind of the market signals to, to, to him or her, you know, should I keep investing in, you know, growing and cultivating this variety? Right. Um, and it's just fun. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been an interesting, uh, you know, I've, I've noticed, uh, actually I guess it was a great American beer festival last year. The, the first kind of bubbling up of mentioning hops estates, you know, talking about the exact farm and the family's you know, name on the farm of of uh, where those hops came from that are in this beer. And it seemed to be a an kind of intriguing new way to uh, not just talk about hop variety that's in that beer, but also talk about, uh, you know, who grew it and, and build some more of that connection. I don't know that that's, you know, ultimately the, you know, the, the most important thing in the same way, in the way that it is, uh, you know, with let's say wine grapes and, uh, and that terroir and the estate that they come from. But uh, it is an interesting move to give, those growers some of the credit for the ingredients that they're producing especially those that are making uh, growing some really fantastic varieties is that something you all engage in or have thought about or yeah i mean we certainly um one i think 
that there is uh, a lot of, of value in the stories behind these hop farms. Yeah. Um, again, it's, it's one of the things that separates a commodity from yeah. what we all have yeah. created. And that is beer. That's not, that's become non-commoditized is because there's stories behind not just the brewery, yeah. There's stories behind the, the the ingredients that we use, the the, the barley growers and the hop growers. Right. Um, they're you know, uh, especially the hop growers. A lot of these are just small, really small, multi generational family farms. These are not, you know, uh, a lot of them it's, are not large, you know, yeah. um, industrial agriculture You're operations. Right. I, you know, I, I made the trip out to Yakima last year and was just fascinated to see how many of these farms are are still like fourth, fifth generation, same family, still family owned. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The ho- they live in the house on the farm. I mean, right. literally, their house is right. you. You turn into the to the to the hop farm, and you pass their house, and their dog comes out to greet you, and you you know you drive on back to the hop fields yeah. and the processing facility. And then some of the largest you know brokers, brokers like YCH, are also still controlled by those family farms. That, Absolutely, uh, you know that, uh, um, and some of the leadership of those companies are also themselves members of those families that have gone. You yeah, know, the leadership the, of YCH yeah, is they're, right. they're they are the farm. They're, he's and, the farmer, and so it's fascinating to see you know the you know uh, uh, mark carpenter carpenter the, you know, yep. the uh, now i guess he's just stepping back from that leadership of, of ych but uh you know fifth generation i mean his family was the first you know, I, you know first to grow hops in, in yakima valley and yet there's that kind of legacy and that kind of you know tight uh, family control and it um you know it's a beautiful story about craft and the way that these ingredients are also grown by people that really do yeah, care again, about it, the land it, and it's what separate it's one of it's one of the things sure. that separates you know commoditized industrial light lager from craft beer yeah yeah is that we, we these stories matter yeah so what's on the horizon for Maine Beer Company? What are, what's keeping you up at night? And what are, what are the biggest uh, exciting opportunities? My two you... kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think that goes for all of us. Um, yeah. Are, are there, are, what, what's your fear right now? I mean, the, the industry as a whole is, is in an in a interesting position. And there are, you know, some external threats to the industry. There are uh, internal, you know, business uh, choices that are putting some breweries at, you know, great risk. And there's an increasing amount of competition because there's we're getting closer and closer to 7,000 breweries in the United States. Um, there's increasing trends towards local, and more people are buying beer direct from breweries. But that also, you know, impacts some of the larger breweries uh, who do great work but are also, you know, have, have a bigger distribution footprint. Um, uh, yeah, what what do those challenges look like for you, and uh, you know what makes you nervous? But what are you also most excited about? Um, well, I mean, I think you touch on a lot of the things that make me nervous, and almost every other brewer in the country nervous, no matter how big you are, how fast you are growing today. Um, there certainly are. Um, I think there's a settling in of of of, of reality that you know the growth that we were experiencing. Um, over the last, you know, several years, simply in any industry is not sustainable long term. We're settling into yeah. a more, I think, mature and sustainable growth pattern. I mean, you'll notice that we're not we're not atrophying. Craft the craft yeah. the craft right. beer by volume um, is is still growing. Um, now that being said, uh, there are certainly a lot more challenges out there today for for breweries large and small. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I do have, you know, I have concerns, um, that, uh, I have concerns that, that not everyone putting together their, their, their business plan, um, or making, um, decisions on when and how to invest are doing it off of realistic expectations for growth. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say, you know, you never want to rain on anybody's parade and say, look, you're not, you're just not going to grow that much. Yeah. Uh, who am I to say? Right. Sure. But, sure. The, but what's even sadder is to see someone who made, you know, kind of a poor business decision, uh, decision go under. I mean, that's, yeah. that, you know, no, and that's, I, I don't care if they're my competitor or not. I, I never want to see that happen to anybody because, sure. you know, I, I know how hard it is uh, to start a business. And so. Um, these are dreams and they're life savings. These are life savings. And, uh, most they have real personal impact. I, I don't. I don't know. I know a very few brewers who uh, came into this business with a lot of money in their bank account. Sure. Most of them emptied it out uh, to get into this business. So. Um, and their parents. And their parents. And aunts and uncles exactly. And, yeah. So I, you know, I, I, for me, it's um, 
I, I just hope, I, I think growth is there. I think growth is going to, I think it's going to continue to be there. I just hope that brewers uh, are making business decisions that are consistent with that reality of the new growth pattern. And that it, yeah. it's not always going to be, you know, a hundred percent growth year over year. And it might be when you're a hundred barrels, a thousand barrels, but you know, you start to get bigger and, and more mature and other realities set in and it's not always going to, going to be that way. Yeah. And that's also just the fear of the unknown, right? There's, I think that if there's something that keeps me up at night, you know, figuratively, not literally, sure. but it's not knowing what in this crazy <laughs> market that we're in, what is going to happen sure. next? I mean, we've seen, you know, big brewers come in and, and gobble up some of our, our, our brothers and sisters. Um, we, you know, we've seen, you know, the massive proliferation of new smaller brewers open up. Um, you know, you've got, you've got, you know, cannabis coming online. Yeah. You know, I think that that has, I mean, that discussion obviously has, has, um, really ramped up in the last year or so, but that's going to be a reality. So it's the fear of the unknown, right? I'd rather know something and I can plan around that. Right, right. But not knowing what the future holds, that's what really makes you nervous because you can do all the planning in the world. But if you don't have the information to, to do that planning, you're, you could be caught with your pants down. And it seems like the time frame in which we have to make these pivots is just getting more and more compacted. Absolutely. It used to be, you know, okay, where am I going to be in two years? And now it's where are we going to be in six to eight months? Yeah. That, uh, yeah so the we, market can change yeah, just and, that fast. Right. And so in order to, I mean, you know, we, and I touched on this earlier when I talked about kind of our growth plans, I mean, we're just incredibly conservative. Yeah. Like we kind of, we, you know, when we're trying to project, you know, investments, capital, you know, expenditures and stuff, we just, we almost just create like worst case scenarios and act as if that is what the future is going to hold. Yeah. Anything on top of that then is gravy. Now you can't be too conservative because there's sure. a cost to that as well. But, right. um, I think that, you know, that's kind of the, the, the mindset that, that we have in these uncertain times. And I yeah. hope that others are acting the same way. Cause again, I don't, I don't, I don't want to see anybody, uh, I don't want to see anybody go under or, 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 you know, kind of put in jeopardy their, their life savings. So, yeah. Ma- but maintaining the integrity of the beer that you make, I think yes. is the most important thing you can do. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think focus like a laser on focus, like a laser on, yeah, not only quality, but you know, why did you get into this business, right? What, what, why are you making beer? Yeah. Tell your, tell your story. That is something that no one can take away from you. That you know, you, that can't be bought by anybody. Um, you know, their authenticity is is I think extre- extremely, extremely important. Um, and integrity is extremely important. You can't once you once you, you know, sacrifice those. You're you're never going to get them back. Um, so focus on right. Focus on making great beer, but you know, also focus on, you know, what you got into this business for a reason, right? And just stay, stay true to that. And, and beer drinkers will, they can sense that, like I said, yeah. they can smell bullshit, you know, so be real. Um, but there's also a lot of things that excite me. I mean, seeing, um, in spite of, I think the doom and gloom that in some ways is justified, but I think in more ways is not justified all the stories we read, um, about, uh, the, the beer industry in general and, you know, overall beer is hemorrhaging, um, and, you know, craft beer growth is slowing in spite of all that, you know, I, you know, in my state of Maine, I still see small brewer breweries opening up in these small towns, um, and revitalizing. You know, yeah. th- these are urban development stories. These are breweries that are going into old riverfront mills that were de- that were uninhabited and probably no business would have gone into but for a brewery opening up there. And then a brewery opens up, then a coffee shop opens up, and then a restaurant opens up. People start coming downtown when they didn't have a reason to before. And you see this story playing out over and over throughout the United States. And that's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, you... I mean, there's a lot of discussion about manufacturing, leaving our communities, leaving our states leaving our country but look at what craft brewing has done for a lot of these communities it's brought manufacturing back and i challenge anybody to name yeah i i can't think of more than one i can't i can name on one hand the number of manufacturing industries in this country that are actually thriving and ours is certainly one of those so that to me is really it gives me hope and, and, and optimism that we're creating something that isn't ephemeral that isn't just going to disappear and that's durable it is this kind of 
rap decentralization you know that we went through this industrial revolution and manufacturing got consolidated and you know it became this tight thing but brewing is blowing that back out pushing that manufacturing back out of that local level um you know and you know the way and that that is in a lot of senses you know mirroring the way that people's uh, you know grow uh, interest in farm to table is increasing um you know but it's a beautiful thing the beer you know, can participate in that kind of cultural trend to, to being closer to the people that make those things. Yeah. I think we're just one of the, our industry is one of the beneficiaries. I think of a larger cultural shift, um, of people who want to know and want to be able to look in the eye, the people that are making the things that they're eating, drinking, wearing, um, I think people have just become fed up with the over commoditization of consumer products. They, they, they want authenticity. They, they, and they will pay for it. Yeah. They will pay a premium for it. Um, and so, and I don't think that's something that can't be taken away from us so long as we don't let it get taken away from us. Right. I mean, I think that that's, that's a card that we have in our hand, um, as small and independent brewers that, you know, that, 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 a big brewer can't, you can't, they can't buy authenticity. They can try to buy one of us, but they can't buy our authenticity. Um, and so that's what gives me hope that, you know, this, this is not, uh, you know, you always, you get the bubble question all the time. Is it all going to go away? I'm like, you know, I'm like, are, are you going to go back to dial up internet? <laughs> you know, once you've experienced, sure, once you've sure. been to the promised land, you know, you're, you're not going, you're not going back. I try to, I try to, you know, tell people once you've had good coffee, do you go back to Seven Eleven coffee again? I mean, there was no. this point where he spent 50 cents on a cup of coffee, but uh, you know what? I'd rather, you know, pay a couple of bucks and get a good cup. Yeah. And once but we have to deliver, right? Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not, you never take it for granted. You know, right. we have to make good, good beer and provide a compelling story and, and, you know, to keep people coming back to us. Yeah. But so long as we're you know, kind of good shepherds of, of, of all the hard work of brewers that came before us, I, I, yeah. I'm extremely optimistic about, about our future. Well, that sounds like a great note to close on. Dan Kleban, thank you so much. Maine Beer Company, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, if people want to learn more about Maine Beer Co., where, where can they find you all? In Freeport, Maine. <laughs> or <laughs> if you don't happen to be uh, within driving distance, you can always find us on the, the old World Wide Web. I think we're at MainBeerCompany.com, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. So, well, But I encourage you to visit us in Freeport. Fantastic. I have been to the brewery, and it's a beautiful location in a beautiful state. Thank you. Yeah. We love it. Thanks so much, Dan. Hey, thanks, Jamie. I appreciate it. Cheers. If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, please subscribe to the podcast, and we'd love for you to subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine as well. If you subscribe to the magazine, then you can even uh, check out through our digital archives on the app uh, the article that uh, Dan and I worked on about uh, the uh, brewer-grower feedback loop in uh, last year's IPA issue of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. Um, Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.